0: So a lot of the times like people like will come up in my mind and I'll think about what do they need right now from from this conversation to keep going or to find hope or to feel like the way they're feeling is valid which I know a lot of people don't have the opportunity to go to therapy or have a coach and sometimes like this stuff can really be something that can remind them of the importance of doing what they can with what they have and i think that's probably something that is really overlooked in our society because i think everyone says there's like for every problem there's a solution and like you have to do things exactly like the way they are and um there's a lot of criticism yeah there's a lot of criticism
1: That's Katie Moran, a mental health advocate. This is The Silver Linings Handbook. I'm Jason Blair. This is a bonus episode where I recently had the opportunity to appear on Katie's podcast, The Artistic Spirit, to discuss how people can use their creativity to improve their mental health. We discuss how many people do not feel they're creative, but all of us have it in us, and it has the power to help heal us and the power to help others. I'm a writer, photographer, and someone who enjoys computer-aided visual design, but I'm not one who's strong in terms of my skills at drawing. Yet drawing at Silver Hill Hospital, a psychiatric hospital in New Canaan, Connecticut, was one of the most therapeutic acts in my entire life. It opened my eyes to the idea that recovery was not linear, but it had peaks and valleys. A revelation that has not only helped me in my recovery, but has also helped me manage grief, and it's been something I've passed on to hundreds of my clients. I hope all of you enjoyed this discussion with Katie, and I would encourage you to follow her inspiring posts on social media and check out The Artistic Spirit, which can be found online on YouTube, and on all of your favorite podcasts.
0: Welcome to the Artistic Spirit Podcast. I'm here today with Jason Blair Jason is a coach, former journalist, expert in mental health and personality psychology and the host of the Silver Lining Handbook podcast. Jason helps leaders develop their talents and organizations, helps others develop their careers and helps others manage their mental health. Welcome, Jason.
1: Thank you, Katie. I just wanted to say before we get started how honored I am to be on your podcast. As you uh, know, because we've talked about it privately, I have long been a um, fan of yours. Uh, I follow you on social media. I often repost or retweet what you're saying and share it with me, uh, the people who follow me, because I think there's such positive messages and you are willing to go places. That uh, other people aren't necessarily willing to go with like love and compassion and kindness and good advice. So, I I think you have built an amazing platform, and I'm glad to be a part of this discussion. So,
0: thank you so much. I'm so honored to have you here today. I think we could just jump right in. And my first question is, can you provide some insights or strategies for creatives who may be facing mental health challenges while pursuing their artistic endeavors?
1: Yeah, so I think it's really interesting. I think a lot of people look at it as the pursuit of artistic um, endeavors, but I think for a lot of artists, their art is really their pursuit of life. It's their form of communication. It's their form of healing it, it those are the things that really drive them so on many many levels it's really about living for them and the art is like a side effect of of living um and as somebody who's always been a creative and I've always been curious you know I started um you know as a as a writer when I was young and one thing a lot of people don't know is that I actually growing up had a reading and writing Um, comprehension learning disability, which is, you know, it's crazy. I became a writer, but you'll see it sometimes uh, in some of the things I write, like I'll flip words or I'll like, you know, have a dyslexic moment. But I I think that I I was lucky. Um, I had parents who, despite my disability, encouraged my ability to be creative because they recognized the idea that, um, those kinds of limitations were actually not obstacles to being creative. So I never suppressed that side of myself. And I think that a lot of people who have mental health challenges, you know, one of the upsides to the benefits of some of those mental health challenges is you look at the world in a different way. You interpret the world in a different way. But when people are going through those crises, it becomes survival and often people suppress that part of them. Um, and they suppress it to survive. They suppress it for a wide variety of reasons because of they're getting negative feedback about their lives. So I've found in my work with a lot of people with mental health challenges, um, un- untapping that creativity gives them an opportunity to auth- uh, be authentic. And it gives them an opportunity to communicate with the world in the way that they're um, best able to do it. And then even among the people who are not necessarily um, creative, I think the arts give themselves or give them a way to express themselves um, that isn't direct, it isn't head on, and it allows them to sort of formulate their thoughts and their feelings in a palatable way. Um, that they can accurately process that. I am not a painter, although I do design, but it's all computer-aided design. Um, I do design visuals. But when I was in um, my first psychiatric hospitalization, shockingly, my most favorite part of it, the part that I love the most, was when we got into therapy and we did drawings because it was a way that I could understand Um, myself, and my own struggles. um, And it was a way that I could creatively express them in a way that if I had been using words, I wouldn't have been able to deal with it. So I really look to, when I'm working with people, to either tap into that if they don't have it as a form of communication, or to bring it back in the people who do have it so they can authentically engage in the world. So.
0: What does authenticity mean to you?
1: Yeah, that's actually a really good question. Um, you know, I, I'm, I'm interested. I, my, my philosophy on it is very interesting because I think that, you know, being authentic, living the world in an authentic way is a key to finding fulfillment, a key to developing real relationships, because if you are operating in the world with some sort of version of yourself that's masked. And a lot of people mask pieces of themselves because they get negative feedback or they don't think they'll be loved um, for who they are. Um, There's no way to truly build a relationship with people. And we're all relational. And I think what we often do in life is we... Build relationships that are based on a fake or clouded or mass version of ourselves. And there's no actual way to find fulfillment without it. Now, you know, I think a, a guest of mine, Jillian Orr, who um, is a LGBTQ uh, uh, activist, um, and the way that she came out was on the stage at her graduation at Brigham Young University, which is a Mormon. University, and I'm going to butcher her quote a little bit, but what she said was, our greatest desire is to be loved. But because we don't believe that we can be loved for ourselves, we hide ourselves. And that makes it impossible for us to be loved. So I think being authentic opens the door for you to truly be loved for yourself and love the way you need to. Now, I think there are limits on that, Katie. Right. Like we all have bad parts of ourselves. We all have um, things that we need to change and areas that we need to grow. Like if I am authentically a serial killer, that is not necessarily a part of it that you want me to be authentic about. So it's really to me, it's recognizing those parts that where you need to grow, they're not adaptive, but then authentically engaging in all the other parts, even if it requires you to be vulnerable.
0: Does that make sense to you? Yeah, and what do you think the the key or the keys would be to building an authentic life?
1: Yeah, I mean it's a tough one. Like I, there's a part of me, there's a coach and mental health professional part of me that thinks through therapy and life experience, um, you can do it, and I do believe you can do it. But I actually think, in a way, that adversity. Is the thing that will drive you, the growth that comes from adversity will drive you to who you truly are more than um, any technique out of a dialectic behavioral therapy manual or CBT. Because what happens when you go through adversity and you come out on the other side or you're trying to is the rubber meets the road and you begin to think about who you really are. Um, And it provides a window, a window everyone doesn't take, but a window to see who you really are and be that authentic you. And I really think like, and my my belief is that adversity is one of the most important parts of the human condition. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, I definitely agree with that because I feel like I get a lot of feedback that i seem authentic and genuine and um a lot of that comes from like facing adversity in my own life so i would say that's how i experience it as well one,
1: one of my friends uh jokes that uh that she doesn't really use the word authentic but she uses the word real and she said that it dawned on her one day that i get to be real because i don't care anymore right I don't care what people think of me. I don't care what they think of my ideas. I don't want to hurt anybody, but ultimately going through the scandal at the times um, and making the mistakes that I made there and having all that negative attention and coverage um, made me feel that like a lot of the things that I used to worry about are pretty low stakes. So I might as well be me.
0: Mm -hmm. What was the most important lesson you learned from that?
1: Okay, so you're getting into uh, getting into the reason why Alice LaCour from the Prosecutor's Podcast jokes that she's nominating me for president. Um, every loss that I've had, every mistake I've made has been a gift. Um, think about it from the perspective of a flower, right? A flower doesn't want to drown when it rains, and a flower doesn't want to be turned brown by the sun. But when you have the right amount of both, that right amount of suffering, we grow. I think we really need to sort of like revise the national kindergarten standards to put more of an emphasis on gratitude, because I am grateful for my attorney. I am grateful for the hamburger flipper, and I am grateful for my suffering. Um, I remember this one thing that Stephen Colbert, the comedian and television host said, and it was, he said, it's a gift to exist. And I'm grateful for my life and everyone who touches it, even the ones who want to do harm to me and even for the loss, even their gifts, because my suffering, I can grow and I can love more people deeply. So just for some context, Colbert lost his father and two brothers in a plane crash when he was 10 years old. And he was once being interviewed by the CNN anchor, Anderson Cooper, who asked about a comment that Colbert had once made. And, you know, Colbert had said that he had learned to love the things that he had wished had not happened. You know, the things that he wished hadn't happened the most. And then he went on to say... You know, what punishments of God are not gifts? And Anderson Cooper lost his brother, his 23 year old brother, Carter, to suicide when I think Cooper was like 18 or 21 or something like that. And he choked up and asked him whether he really believed that. And Colbert said, yes, that it's a gift to exist. And with existence comes suffering, and that there's no escaping that. And if you're grateful for your life, then you have to be grateful for all of it. You can't pick and choose what you're grateful for. And then, so what do you get from loss? You get an awareness of other people's loss, and that allows you to connect with them more deeply, and it allows you to love them more deeply. And... I believe that that's been my philosophy for a long time, whether my mental health crisis or my scandal or losing my job or making other mistakes or losing my mother. It has all been a gift because it helps me grow and helps me to love more deeply. So, you know, you made the point about leadership and I think it extends to that. Like a leader's job leader's primary job is not to make decisions. If you think about our history, right? Like when we were all out in the wild in the Savannah, you know, people didn't pursue being leaders. That didn't come until much later and we became agrarian and they're warlords. That often groups selected leaders because we are not the fastest animal. We do not have the sharpest teeth, right? We are not going to outrun cheetahs. So we need to be able to, form communities form teams and work together the making decisions part is really just a side effect so my job as a leader is to be an umbrella and a guide protecting my people from storms and how can i do that if i don't know mistakes if i don't know loss if i don't know grief and i don't know adversity so the biggest lesson that i learned from the time scandal you know particularly being suicidal at that time is that to exist is a gift. And that even in pain, I should embrace that gift. I know that was a long-winded answer.
0: I think that's so beautiful. And <clears throat> I've been doing a lot of like suicide prevention um, work with uh, Mindful Mental Health miniseries I'm coming out with. And so much of that... Um, it just like really like opens up my heart cuz i've recently been thinking a lot about um the time when i was suicidal and like what that was like and then the second time and um just kind of like that feeling of being stuck in something and knowing mm-hmm. that um it's kind of like the mud you're like planted in for like a lotus flower to grow
1: yeah and and the, you know speaking of suicide i think it's an important thing for people to remember, right? That if you think about, you know, we th- we think about suicidal people and we often think that, um, we think about their desire to not wanna live, how demotivated you can become in depression. And I think we tend to focus on that. But I think it really comes back to that idea that loss and being hurt is really a gift because we have a choice in that moment. We can choose to go on, and I think a lot of people don't think about that, is every day we can choose not to go on. And I think that it's something people don't think about with depression. Every time you have a depressed person in front of you, no matter how sad or no matter how demotivated they are, They have a choice. They've chosen to go on in that moment. And if they can find that reason that they chose to go on, that reason they have, they can find that. And if you think about my podcast, they can find that silver lining.
0: Yeah, I'd love to go deeper into that. So your podcast is called The Silver Linings Handbook. Could you tell us more about the concept of finding silver linings, especially in challenging situations and how it ties into your work?
1: Yeah. Um, I think some of it comes from my own experience with being suicidal and finding a way to go on. But I was also raised by parents from two families that both went through a tremendous amount of adversity. You know, my Uh, fathers from a small town in the Midlands along the Savannah River in South Carolina. His father and his family were run out of their hometown. You know, there were lynchings in their family. Um, They didn't talk much about emotions, but it was so obviously clear if you spent two seconds with them, that they loved each other. And they always believed that, quote, this too shall pass. And I never saw a group of people that smiled so much. And with that amount of adversity, how? And it's because they could find the silver linings. You know, my mother's family has a tremendous amount of adversity as well. If you put her mother, father, and brothers and sisters and my cousins at a room together you couldn't throw a stress ball without there's like a near zero chance you're gonna hit somebody who hasn't struggled with mental health or substance abuse so why are they always smiling and filled with joy it's because they've found those silver linings so you know i tackled Tough topics on my podcast. You know, it's not Pollyanna. You know, we've talked about poor leaders, serial killers, abusive families, mental health crises, things like forensic psychology, or like um, recently we talked about like Brett Talley from the prosecutors about how, you know, we use things like horror and fiction to process things that are just too scary in the in the real world. Um, And how do these people go on? How do they bring joy and grace into the world? Well, it's because whether they're a writer or a journalist or a psychologist or a defense attorney or a prosecutor or a woman who lost her husband at a young age, they found a silver lining that's allowed them to grow, to go on, to give grace, to find joy, and to keep on moving. And that's part of the reason why I call it you know, sort of my tagline for it is conversations that inspire. It's not because they're easy topics. It's because they're hard ones, but they're also the ones that give us gifts, the ones that allow us to grow and bring more good and bring more love into the world. Does that make sense to you, Katie?
0: Yes, and um, I'm just wondering if someone had a trouble finding the silver linings in their life, what exactly would you say to them to try to help them find those?
1: Yeah, i I don't think it's always easy to find them. I don't even think there's, you know I don't I think there are moments to not find them, right, to live in your grief and to live in your sadness. If you force people, and you probably know this, any of your listeners who have dealt with anxiety uh, or even depression, if you try to force someone too early, they're going to want to toss you off the side of a building and they're going to feel worse. Like if you ever run into somebody having a panic attack, the worst thing you can tell them is it's not that bad, right? You have to allow people to feel and to live in their emotions, no matter how uncomfortable, even sometimes when you see the silver linings, right. That exists in the future, it is not your space to tell them. That's a moment where you should just be holding your holding their hand and being there for them. Because what I think the way that you truly find those silver linings in life is not any magical epiphany. Um, And I think they do come, right? Like somebody hears a friend say something, uh, they listen to a seminar, they go through a life experience where all of a sudden they realize, and I'll tell you in a second how I found mine, where they realize, oh, this horrible experience that I had just brought something good to someone else. And that's the civil lining. So at its core, what is it? You find them by just living, by staying connected, in living, and I found mine. You know, after my scandal and then my mental health diagnosis, which went hand in hand, um, I thought I w- well. First of all, I love journalism. It is the love of my life in terms of vocation. It still is. I cry when I think about um, not being able to do it anymore, um, and. I thought not only was I never going to be able to be a journalist again, I was never going to be able to work. And my whole life had been centered around that, right? Um, or at least since I was a teenager. And the way I found my silver lining was by asking for help. I went to ask for help, and there was no support group in that area for bipolar. So I started one, selfishly. Everybody's like, ah, you're such an altruist for doing it. No, it was selfish. It was all for me. I wanted help. I wanted to learn from people. And then after about a year, or maybe it was a little bit earlier than that, in the middle of our support group meetings, I realized that my experience, not only was I getting something from it, my experience was helping other people in the group. And then all of a sudden, when I saw how my experience profoundly changed other people's lives, gave them an opportunity to not go through what I went through, gave them an opportunity to find hope in moments where they had absolute despair. It was those moments where I went from wishing that what happened with me had never happened to not being able to imagine a world um, where it hadn't. And Trust me, I wish there were better ways for me to have learned those lessons. And it's a real tough call for me. Um, But if you ask me, would you do it all over again? I would tell you I wish there was a better way, but I would not have liked the person that I would have been. I would not be as humble. I would not be, I've always been caring, but I don't think I would have been as caring. And I wouldn't be such a gift to the world if I had not gone through it.
0: I love that. I think that's um, something that's so beautiful that a lot of people can relate to. Um, so I have kind of a strange question, but this is one mm-hmm. I love to ask people. Um, okay. So if you could bottle up any emotion and give it to people, what would that be?
1: Oh, huh. that's so funny. You know, because I think to some extent, uh, it's gonna have a lot to do with the moment that they're that their end right because the, mm-hmm. the tempting answer is to say um uh I would give them joy right I mean you kind of wish you would give everyone joy um but do you know my I you know my mom recently died right mm-hmm. and um I don't think I needed joy in that moment, right? Like it's a sacred loss. I I um I needed to feel sadness and gratitude for her existence. I needed to feel distraction at different moments. Um I think I would have felt really weird if I was like in a feeling of ecstasy there or you know, as somebody who is a drug addict like stamping out my emotions or or feelings. Um, If I were walking down, if someone, if my friend were walking down a dangerous dark alley, I wouldn't want them to feel bliss at that moment. Right. Like I would want them to be like, you know, anticipating, vigilant, like possibly um, annoyed. So, but to answer your question, right. I often give my friends something that's called uh, Pluchek's wheel of emotions. And it, Runs around like on the outside, it's got like a, a ring of emotions like serenity, interest, annoyance, boredom, like pensiveness, uh, apprehension, joy, like acceptance. And I don't remember all the next circle, but there's a next circle, another circle, and in the middle circle, it's like rage, vigilance, ecstasy, admiration, terror, amazement, grief, loathing. And I I usually get it framed for them and I tell them to put it on the wall and then walk over it and touch what emotion they need in the moment. So I know I'm answering, not answering your question, um, but for me personally, at this moment, I need to feel serenity, right? But when my mom was passing, I needed to feel anger and grief. And so what I hope for people is that they're able to find and not wall themselves off because we're all afraid of our emotions changing and we build all sorts of walls to control and to manage it. And those ultimately those walls become a disservice to us. So I hope people can open themselves up and be vulnerable to find the emotion that they need in the moment because the cost of not finding it. The cost of defending yourself against the emotion you don't want to feel or that you feel is awkward is so much greater than allowing yourself to feel it. I know dodged, but answered.
0: (laughs) Yes, I think it was answered. um, Which I think is something that um, people can learn from because I've asked so many people that question. And a lot of the times, um, people just think kind of like what's the best emotion they've ever felt and how can they give that to people and i think it's interesting to kind of like prioritize all emotions as them being appropriate responses to life circumstances
1: yeah they exist for a reason every one of them you know i don't know if you believe in god i go back and forth um but you know, whatever put us on this planet, biology, God, it might be a combination of all above, gave us this set of tools, right? And this set of tools appears to work for a reason. Like, none of them are are uh, are, are, are an organ that no longer functions, that we can just have removed. They mm-hmm. all give us uh, the gift to be able to manage and get the most out of life in any particular moment. And you know, have you ever read the book *Gift of Fear*? I haven't. Have you to Becker. Okay, it's basically a book, and there's this one part where he talks about um, Nicole Simpson and O.J. Simpson, and talked about how she had long before the murder um, felt this sense of like dread and worry. And he says this line about anxiety, our anxieties and our fears, and he says and our intuition. And he says, intuition and anxiety always have your best interests at heart. They may go overboard at times. They may not be calibrated perfectly, but they're trying to protect you, right? Looking at that as a particular um, emotion. Um, We do so much to avoid anxiety, but sometimes it is the warning sign telling us, right? I would not want to... Sometimes I have anxiety that's out of control, but I wouldn't want to live a world with no anxiety. I wouldn't be safe. I wouldn't be. So I think being able to embrace those emotions and not run away from them entirely. Right. I'm not going to do good with panic attacks all day, but I'm not going to do good with no anxiety. So being able to embrace those, I think is just such a blessing. If that makes sense. Mm -hmm.
0: Um, Yeah. So, um, this is a bit of a deeper question, but you've covered significant events like September 11th attacks and the Washington D.C. sniper shootings. How has your experience as a journalist reporting on these events informed your understanding of resilience and coping strategies, especially in today's world?
1: Yeah, you know that's a really good point. Um, if I can jo- drop to, to there's this moment during the COVID pandemic. And it was in February or March, March probably. And I was very much in denial that the pandemic was going to be full-blown. I thought we were going to be gone for a couple of weeks. Like, we'd stop a spread. We'd all be back, right? Mm-hmm. But I said in the back of my mind, just in case that's not true, I'm going to go back to therapy. And so I went back to therapy um, in, on many levels because I knew my job was going to transform from one where I was focused mainly on my mental health coaching clients and my leadership development clients to one in which I was intently focused on taking care of my people, taking care of my family, taking care of our vendors, making them uh, as safe as possible, educating them, giving them solid data, comforting them, right? And I knew that was going to become my major job. And I knew that there was a risk in taking that on as my major job, that I would not take care of myself. So I went back to therapy. And of course, it helped. But that was not the big revelation. So about a year and a half in, my therapist, having heard a bunch of my stories, she's like, how many dead people have you seen? Because I was constantly telling these journalism stories about death. And, uh, and I, they didn't bother me. You know, like, didn't bother me. And so she gave me this project of counting how many dead bodies could I reasonably attest that I had seen? And I counted 270. It was a little over 270. Starting at my a high school summer where I saw the aftermath of five kids from the town next to ours and the school where my mom had um, taught had seen a movie where a bunch of kids laid under a train. They didn't know the train they laid under had a cattle prod. So they were like spread over 50 feet. And I spent time with their loved ones and I wrote about it. But throughout my career, whether it was a plane crash in Pennsylvania where people's clothes and body parts were hanging from the trees or it was 9-11, I... uh, I've seen, as my therapist pointed out, a lot of unnatural death. And she asked me, how many natural deaths have you seen? And I was like, I saw my grandfather naturally die. Um, So I I experienced a lot of that. And clearly, she was very concerned by the fact that I did not think it was a big deal. Um, But I think I had desensitized myself uh, to the idea of loss. Um, There was one thing in my entire career that would bring me to tears before this moment. And that was this little elementary school girl who was walking beside a building and just a random brick fell off the building and killed her. Just the randomness of it, the randomness of death and the randomness of um, loss. And I think what I did was I walled myself off from emotion. I walled myself off without even knowing it from feelings. I remember my dad and my therapist years ago used to say like, hmm, I think you might have a little PTSD and I was like, no, 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 no. And then one day I was reading the 102 minutes from the point where the first plane crashed into the World Trade Center to when the buildings collapsed and I broke out in the first panic attack of my life. But I'm a numbskull, skull So of course I didn't get treating treatment for at the time. But so what I would say is that the actual result of all of that was not a good one for me because I wasn't open to it. It caused me to shut myself off from the world and attempt to avoid loss, right? But what that work with the therapist did is it opened up, opened me up. To realizing I can't control having loss in my life. And because of that, I got years with my mom. Instead of avoiding going out with them or avoiding connection and deepness with them because I was afraid I was going to lose them, I was able to take advantage of all that time together because I was no longer running away from loss. So I would say at first, what I got was disconnection from the world, like everything became flat. You know, I mm-hmm. saw the without a lot of emotion. Um, but what I've ultimately gotten from it over the time is to be able to embrace these things as a gift that I never would have imagined. And I've become less controlling. And by that, I've never controlled, I think, to do harm. I've always controlled for positive re- reasons, but like, I wanted to control the pieces on the chessboard, right? Like if I move the Pieces here, I'm going to be okay. Or I'm not going to get hurt. Or my friend is not going to get hurt. Or my friend's boyfriend isn't going to harm her or whatever it is. I've stopped trying to control the Mm-hmm.
0: How much uh, mental health um, challenges do you think are adaptive to kind of like life circumstance rather than it, just like genetic or things like that?
1: You mean like the like idea appropriate
0: responses to what's happening in their life
1: oh oh I well I mean stepping back from that I think a lot of mental health problems are gifts and it's hard for people to see it at times like if you're the family member or you're um, or you're um, someone who's there so like you know some of the most gifted people in terms of like technology or ideas or innovation are autistic and there's a reason for that Um. You know, when I was when I was a journalist, um, you know, I could have probably diagnosed myself with bipolar if I knew what it was. And I'll never forget this one time: I'm walking in the middle of the newsroom in the middle of the night, talking to one of my colleagues. His name was Greg Winter, and I I said to him, "You know, I think when I'm sad, it helps me connect more with people." And when I'm energetic, it helps me be productive. It's hard, but like I'm seriously, I'm describing bipolar disorder right then. And I had no idea what it was. And um I uh I think that is a gift. Like I think it's too extreme in bipolar disorder. But I think that idea of being enthused at something positive or where you can have an impact and being able to do it at like this hypomanic level that isn't damaging to you or others is an amazing gift and ability to respond to the world. And, you know, frankly, it goes back to what I was saying at the beginning. If you do not experience loss, how can you relate to someone else's loss. So I think many of these things, whether they're anxiety or they're other things, they're feelings that people normally have. But the mentally ill, the gift is that we can feel them more deeply. And it's a matter of, and I think this is a part of the reason why, like there's this book by Kate Jameson, who has bipolar and is a psychiatrist herself, Touched by Fire. There is a reason why people with mentally ill are like, touched by fire and we are so creative and we're able to build such connections like virginia wolf or pick your person and so it's not all beautiful right being mental illness is not all beautiful and it's all a response to the to the world those feelings that we have but there are some gifts. I will stake it in the ground and I will fight this battle forever. That there are some gifts that the mentally ill have that the rest of you suckers who don't have it. You just wish you could be as cool as us. So that's where I am.
0: Yeah, I definitely agree with that. I've read um, some K. Jameson and it's mm-hmm. very powerful. Um, I love her story and how she sees the world. And in, um, in
1: Quiet Mind was the first book anybody, yes. my college advisor, um, found out about the scandal. And she said, she called me up and she's like, read this book.
0: And uh, it was a blessing. Yeah, that made me a better writer. Um, yeah. Definitely. What has impacted you most in interviewing guests on your podcast? Any insights you can share?
1: Hmm. Well, so I'll tell you. When I first started the podcast, so I I didn't want to do a podcast. People kept saying to me, you should do a podcast. They would see me do a presentation or they'd have some conversation with me and they're like, you should do a podcast. And there was this one coach of mine who was a guest, Lisa Cruel, who was like over and over again, you should do a podcast. Then one day my sister-in-law comes by and is like, you should do a podcast. And she has her own podcast, Raising Vibrant Kids. And I was like, what is wrong with you people? Like, nobody is interested in hearing what I have to say. Because I was thinking about podcasts as, like, more didactic, right? And um, and then all of a sudden my clients started saying, They you should do a podcast. I guess they were listening to podcasts. So I finally, I finally decided to, like, give it a try. And one of the things that I really realized as a coach, as a journalist – is that my gift isn't so much what I have to say, although it can be mildly entertaining at times and it can be twice a day because it's like a broken clock, I can be insightful. But what I thought the real power was is is my ability to connect with other people and to be naturally curious. And what I mean by that is when I am interviewing a guest, I'm not paying attention to my script. I am intensely listening to whatever they say. And sometimes I get to the end of them like, that was a ridiculous, disconnected, unbelievable. But what I've realized is it's just authentic, right? It's authentic curiosity at play. And I think some of the deepest, my original idea was like, okay, I'm going to do a Podcasts on psychology in the workplace, and you can see how some of the early episodes focus on like leadership development or fill in the blank. But I was doing this one with this guy who had been a friend of mine when I was a reporter at the Times. His name is Jerry Colonna. He's now an executive coach, and we were going to talk about some of the work that I had done as a journalist and he had done as a venture capitalist. But listening intently to him in the beginning, I heard a story about him I had never heard. I did not he- know he grew up as an adult child of an alcoholic. I did not know he would hide under the bed when his father came home to figure out whether his footsteps said something violent was going to happen or abusive was going to happen or whether it was going to be okay. And it derailed our entire original plan of a conversation. And as I naturally followed it, I realized that I can create a space for people. To facilitate them telling their real story, not the story that they tell in their speeches, not the story that they tell to make money or to entertain people, but to tell who they really are and to get the real lessons out of it. So in all of my conversations on my podcast, I am learning new things with the people who are there. I am being surprised and I am pulling away lessons in all of the episodes. So what have I learned? Listen to people intently. Not just when you're interviewing on a podcast. Like, Be present. Listen to what they're saying. In that moment where the answer to their question comes halfway through their talking, throw that crap out. Throw it out. And just listen intently to what they're having to say. And I think it's improved my life. It's improved my relationships with other people. It's improved me as a leader. It has enriched me. It has enriched me. It's been a gift to me.
0: Yeah, I think just hearing kind of like your process and seeing your process has definitely made me a better podcaster. Mm -hmm. Um, Just like even some of your feedback um, has helped me um, in places where you said that. things, um, whether they'd be flowing naturally or things like that. I guess I've never really thought to kind of like look at my style or like. um.
1: One of the things that I really thought um, in listening to you, I thought your questions were so insightful. But here's the other thing I thought. I thought I wanted to say, Katie, you should just trust yourself. You should let go and trust yourself because that brilliant thing that's, and I could tell this in our first conversation, that brilliant thing that's going to pop into your mind as you're listening to people is going to be more powerful than any plan. And I've seen that. I saw your last interview and I was like, she's doing it. (laughs) And I see you're doing it here.
0: Yeah, well you have so much you have so much um in what you're saying that really just makes me think. Um honestly it makes me think about someone who's listening who might be going through something who doesn't have that opportunity to ask a question. And like I think about um like every time you say something, I think about one of those people and kind of like who they are and like what they're going through. Cause I I have a lot of interaction with my followers. So, a lot of the times, like people like will come up in my mind and I'll think about like what do they need right now from from this conversation to keep going or to find hope or to feel like the way they're feeling um is valid, which I know a lot of people don't have the opportunity to go to therapy or have a coach and um sometimes like this stuff can really be something that can remind them of the importance of doing what they can with what they have and i think that's probably something that is really overlooked in our society because i think everyone says there's like for every problem there's a solution and like you have to do things exactly like the way they are and um Rarely there's a lot of criticism at all Yeah, there's a lot of criticism when you don't do something
1: (laughs) the way way that... mm
0: -hmm. What you're
1: saying right now is why you were one of my role models. You engage your listeners and with empathy and with compassion. And it is so unbelievably powerful. So I don't think you just have a podcast or a business. I think you've built a community. And this is one thing that somebody said to me that kind of pushed me over the edge on the podcast, and this was Lisa again. She said, you've always said that you wish cost was no obstacle to get what we do. This is a way for you to give out the lessons that people learn from our conversations for free to everyone. And Katie, that's what I feel like you do. I feel like you share those lessons freely to so many people, and you have built, and it comes back to what, you know, Brett said on your podcast, Brett said on my podcast, you have built a community at a time where so many of our normal communities have fallen apart. You've taken social media, this thing that people really hate and are afraid of, and you have built a real community for people. And that, to me, is what we need. That is powerful
0: hmm So if there's someone who's listening who, um, feels hopeless, but also has, has the idea that maybe if they somehow got out of that hopelessness, that they'd be able to do something that is of importance in their mind that could actually have them feeling fulfillment. What would you say to them for them to kind of like keep, um, as a bit of like a golden nugget on their journey to get there.
1: So I think it would probably change for me every day. Today, I would tell them to watch that Anderson Cooper, Stephen Colbert interview like 20 times. And, and and the reason why I bring that up, it's not just on my mind, is if you look at what Colbert says at the end, that it allows you to connect with people and allows you to love them more deeply, right? It 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 kind of aligns with like, the 12th step of AA. There's a reason why step number one is to admit that you're powerless, right? Like, give it up. Give it up, Jason. Give it up. Give up all that control. And then the 12th step, right? You know, whatever's in between. The 12th step is being of service. And being of service helps other people. And it shows you how far you have come and how something good has come out of the bad. So what I would say is after you finish watching that Colbert Anderson Cooper interview, you know, think about every part of our life where there is an opportunity to be of service. And there have been moments in my life where the only way I could be of service is if I could make it from my bed to the bathroom that day. And maybe my mom felt better when I was that depressed and there have been other times i've been able to do nothing but just go down the street to the salvation army and volunteer for their cooking center and i couldn't even hang around to see the positive feedback that came from it but i was able to be of service right and then there have been other times where i've been intently been able to be of service but being of service in small ways reminds you of your unique value to this world that if we lose you this world loses something that it cannot replace because whoever you are, you bring value. Whether you yell at me or you hug me, or you have a good idea, or you have one that I think is nuts that I eventually pay attention to, and then I'm like, huh, ah, mm, you might be onto something. You bring value to this world. It may not feel like it in that moment, but we all have unique gifts, right? probably doesn't feel like that, Katie, when somebody's yelling at you and or body shaming or some other thing, but I'm willing to bet we dig down enough, there's some pain and there's some hurt in that person's life and they can be of value. And it may not feel like it when you're depressed and you can't make it to that bathroom, but you know what? You do have value and you have something to give the world and you have something to receive from the rest of us. So It goes back to the compliment I gave you that service is an avenue to find community and community is a way to find belonging and take the baby steps you can, even if that baby step is just being able to get out of
0: bed. Well, thank you so much. I hope that um, the person who needs to hear that will be able to hear it. Um, Thank you so much for coming on today.
1: Yeah, I really enjoyed it. I hope you keep on kicking it. Um, I don't know when this is going to come out, but I'm also having you on the podcast for a powerful episode. You know, your vulnerability is amazing and your lessons are amazing. And it's a really, it's a gift to have connected with you. And I, you know, keep on doing good. I'll keep on doing good. And, you know, we'll make the world a little better place in our own ways.
0: Amazing. Thank you.
1: If you'd like to join us for more discussions, With us and other listeners, we can be found on most social media platforms, including a listener-run Facebook group called The Silver Linings Fireside Chat. For deeper conversations with our guests and live conversations with other listeners, you can also join us at our Patreon at www.patreon.com forward slash The Silver Linings Handbook. This is The Silver Linings Handbook. I'm Jason Blair. We'll see you all again in a few days.